Alright, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're at, and just a reminder of where we left off last week, pretty much all of chapter 2 is Peter giving these Christians instructions on how to live, and that's a lot of what our New Testament is, just telling saved people how they're supposed to live. They are supposed to live different than the world. God expects something from His people. God expects something from those who He's indwelling. And he is gonna, He's basically continuing this thought through this entire chapter and into the next chapter. Now, we're going to look at a very difficult passage towards the end of this chapter. Um, and in order to explain this, uh, it's very important. We're going to have to go into the next chapter. So we're going to go a little bit into chapter 4 tonight. Um, and then I'm going to give you my thoughts and my opinions that I'm 97% sure I'm right on. All right, Not, Man, I wish I could give you 100% tonight that I got it. I can tell you. But folks, uh, some things are difficult. There's some tough passages in the Bible. And I wish I could stand here and tell you I got it all nailed down. Uh, but I'm going to give you my thoughts. But it's very important that we understand the context, the theme, everything going on. So all of chapter 2, pretty, pretty much all of chapter 2, telling them how to live. Now we're in chapter 3. He is continuing to do the same thing. He is showing these strangers and pilgrims on the earth how to be good citizens, how to be good examples to the world. Exactly what Paul taught to Gentile believers all the time in his letters. And so he starts off uh, talking about their behavior in their employment. And then he encouraged them to follow in the steps of Christ in chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, he's continuing to teach them how to live life on earth in the midst of, and he didn't use these words, but a crooked and perverse nation because they had that going on back then too. So in verse, or chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now, this thing right here is one of the things that the world criticizes us for about as much as anything. Okay? This does not fit with the feminist agenda. And I'd love nothing more than just preach a whole sermon on this tonight, but we don't really have time. But this is how everyone should live. This is how it should be in every culture. The wife should be in subjection to her husband. That's how they're supposed to be. They should have a chaste conversation. Now, where do we see these things promoted today? Where do we see chastity promoted? Where do we see submission promoted? All right? They're not promoting that stuff in Wonder Woman, folks. Okay? They're, promoting, they're promoting the opposite. Okay? I'm tired of women beating up guys on TV. You know, some 110-pound woman beating up a 220-pound guy like nothing. That's not, gonna, it's not how it is, folks. Okay, and these ones that actually can beat up men, they're on hormones. Okay, they're freaks, and a lot of them are probably trannies. All right, and then, you know, in, in reality, and that is not what we should be promoting for our daughters. These are not good things, but yet we're very criticized. Okay, the heathen, they look at what the Bible teaches and what we practice. When it comes to the role of men and women, and folks, they will not let up. This is one of the biggest complaints we get. I get hammered on social media all the time for this kind of stuff. And the trendies have embraced the worldly philosophy of just you know this equality. And so-called Christians have criticized 
me. And they criticize the IFB all the time because of the fact that we promote male leadership like the Bible does. And then they act like we're making women inferior and they'll use all these real negative terms. And that's just not the truth. That's an absolute lie. And they, you know, the truth is they're the ones promoting, you know, the Wonder Woman types, which, I mean, that, folks, first off, that devalues women. Because one, women can't do any of that stuff that she does. Okay. And second of all, I mean, is, you know, is, is that the image? Is that the look, too, that we're trying to promote? Women wearing less clothes and all that kind of stuff. I, I thought that was a, more of a masculine thing that they promoted. Folk, you know, the, the conflicts, the, the double standards all, that they're, with what they're pushing is just ridiculous. And Christians should not follow that kind of stuff. And so, notice too how important the chase conversation is. And while scorners, so the scorners lose their mind over this, but, you know, wives submitting to the husband, there's going to be a better result. And Christians, we should pre- be producing better, happier women. More mentally balanced women. We, we should be uh, uh, presenting that. Now, we don't always do that, okay? We don't always do that. Let me, let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but verse 3 says, Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel. And there are many things that women have been told throughout time measures their worth. But, you know, these are vain and foolish things. And so I believe what Peter's referring to here with the plaiting of the hair, putting on of apparel, um, I don't think he's giving us a specific thing that women are not allowed to do this. It's a sin for women to do this. I think what he was doing was giving an illustration of how, you know, women uh, just basically flaunting themselves manifested itself in that day. And understand throughout time that it, it manifests itself differently. Okay? There's different styles and there's different things that, you know, women do to just try to stand out, things that, um, you know, are just kind of popular, trending, you know, whatever. And uh, ultimately, those things that people do where they just kind of go over the top on stuff, and there's nothing wrong with women looking nice. Okay? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about women and beauty, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're just doing things to draw attention to yourself, when you're doing things that does not promote a chaste conversation, purity, things like that, then there's a problem. And... We could talk a lot about this, but uh, just notice Peter is giving very clear instructions on how women should live and how wives specifically. And it says, but let it be that hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So rather than or, you know, putting all these jewels and that type of ornament on themselves to get attention, what women should do is they should adorn themselves with the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. You should be promoting a godly personality. That's what people should notice about you. Okay, if the first thing, if the main thing people notice about you is your hairdo, your gaudy jewelry, your makeup, if, that, if I mean, if, if that's like your defining characteristic, you're probably doing some things wrong. You know what your defining characteristic should be? 
godliness. You know, it should be godly virtues. And the same thing for men too, okay? But obviously, um, with men, people don't typically look at us to look at us, right? You know, and... Um, we don't, we obviously don't think that much about it. Okay. I can, I can tell all the ladies in here put more work into their appearance tonight than the men. Okay. And I would be worried if it looked like some of you men put more work in your appearance uh, than, than the ladies. Okay. There, there's, you know, so the thing is that we, you know, we don't have the temptation as much as ladies do, but it's real easy for a lady to get all caught up in those outward things and then forget the character things. And the character things are much more important. Okay. Now understand if you look horrible wearing flower sacks, that doesn't make you godly either. Okay? You have some ladies, it's like they think the more you know, homely they can look, the more old-fashioned they can look. If they look like they fell off the Ingalls wagon all right, in, you know, in a dust storm, then all of a sudden that makes them godly. No, that just makes you lazy and you don't have anything going for you. Okay? So just you know, don't do that either. But, um, you know, so what God sees as valuable, the world does not usually see as valuable. And these traits are valuable. Now watch this. Verse 5 says, For after this manner, in old time, holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, first thing, men, we've got to understand that it's it's our job our, as husbands and fathers to promote these virtues as valuable to our wife and to our daughters. And the reason, because the world is not doing that. Okay, the world's the, the world's making women think they can beat up guys. The world's making women think they can do anything that men can do, and they can't. And a lot of women are trying and going psycho trying to figure out how to do it. And they can't do it. And I think that's why we got a lot of women today that think they're actually men. I think we've confused them. And same thing with the guys. We've got a lot of guys think that they're women. But just notice, it's it's up to us to promote these things as valuable. The world is not going to do this for us. And so, uh, the holy women of old, they adorn themselves in subjection. And so, these character traits were ornaments that were valuable and it showed that the women themselves were valuable. It showed that these women actually did have great value. Not because of anything they put on themselves. Not because of how they looked. Because of their behavior. Because of their actions. And so a woman decking herself with precious metals or whatever for a show, that might she might look valuable doing that. But you know what? If she's a brawling woman, who cares? Because you're better off in a wilderness than in large halls with a brawling woman. So if you you might be have rich and have that big house, but if you got a horrible wife, you can't enjoy it. You, you'd have more fun in the wilderness. I think that's why some of you have these mountain men that go out. They probably were married to brawling women, and they're like, well, "I'm taking that Bible verse literally. I'm going out in the mountains." And you know what? I've seen some women out there. If I was married to them, I'd probably do the same thing. So you know, it, it's valuable when you have these traits as a lady. And so when it says. Uh, Two, not afraid with any amazement. I believe this is telling the woman not to be intimidated into being like the women of the world. Because ladies, you're going to get criticized. Our world does try to devalue that. And they're always pushing them for these careers and all these things that just are not fulfilling for women. 
Again, there's a reason, you know, we're seeing more and more women going crazy and more and more women can't figure out if they are a woman. It's because the things being promoted in society are not making women happy. They are not fulfilling. And so we're seeing a clear theme here of Christians being different from the world. Okay? Now in verse 7 it says, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And I would also love to preach a whole sermon preaching against insecure punks who have zero knowledge about women, who they read the part about submission and then all of a sudden they basically interpret that as I can be abusive and she's got to put up with it. Baloney. Hey, you are supposed to take care of her. You are supposed to honor her as under the weaker vessel. You know what that means? That means you give her what she wants sometimes before you get what you want. Because you can handle doing without more than she can. It's, you know, women, whatever happened to women and children first? You know what, ladies, if you don't feel like you're getting this sometimes, you know what, maybe it's the feminist movement, you know, this mess, this guy, maybe that's what killed chivalry. And so, you know, you know, we need more ladies standing up against the Ellen DeGenerates and the harpies on the view and people like that. You know, you need to stand up against that. You need to speak out against the Beth Moores and, uh, what's the lady that looks like Joker? Uh, Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer. All right. You know, you need, you need to stand up against people like that too because they're ruining things for you. Guys are listening to what they're saying and then you know what they're doing? They're starting to treat you like men. And so, uh, but that, that's not right. But listen, guys, okay, cherish, okay? When you cherish something, you take care of it. You protect it. Okay? You watch over it. You don't abuse it. Okay? You, you, you don't do that. And I'm telling you, I'm sick of these chest-thumping idiots going around. You'll see them barfing their foolishness on Facebook about, you know, women being silent in the church and being submissive and all that. And it's just like, you know what? If my daughter was married to you, I think I would probably just shoot you and go to prison. All right? Because I would rather me be in prison than my daughter in the prison of your household. He said, I don't like that. Well, then don't marry my daughter. Don't ask to marry my daughter if you're going to be like that. Okay? If you're going to marry my daughter, you better convince me that you're going to take care of her, that you're going to cherish her, that you're going to protect her. And I believe she should be in submission, but that is not, that is not just cause for you to be abusive and to walk all over them. Okay? And I don't have time to say more on that, but I'd love to. I've preached some messages on that in the past. I can't remember which one, but... If, if you need one, let me know. I'll find it for you and give it to you. Or I'll give it to your wife and then she'll make sure you get it for sure. So, but this, this, what Peter's preaching here is exactly what Paul preached to the Gentile Christians. Ephesians 5.28 So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. So, he's speaking to churches here but the instruction that he's given is clearly for the home. Now, why is this? I'll tell you why. Because a, dysfunction, a church full of dysfunctional homes is going to be a dysfunctional church. I don't care how good our church is. I don't care how good our doctrine is. If our homes stink, our church is going to stink. And you know what? If, if, if our home... Yeah, I mean, so there, there's no point in having a great church if everybody's homes are miserable. 
There's really no point. We want to have a great church so the people can come and they can grow and they can benefit from the things of God and following the ways of God. So we're always going to preach about stuff in the home. We're always going to talk about, you know, husband and wife things and about and raising children and uh, and just morality and certain behavior. We're going to promote these things and we're going to thunder them from the pulpit because if you have all this sin in your life and in your home, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to be good Christians and we're going to be a really crummy church. So, and I don't want to, I don't want to be a crummy church. I want, to, I want us to have a good church. So, verse 8 says, Finally be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. And this is another common teaching that any church needs. We need to, as a church, love each other. We need to, you know, we need to like each other. We need to be concerned for one another. We need to pay attention to one another. And that's why it's important that, you know, said showing up for church is important, but fellowship's important too. You know, you're never going to thrive in a church when you show up one minute before it starts and leaves two minutes before it's over. You've got to, you're not going to get to know anybody. You're not going to be able to be a help to anybody, exhort anybody. So we've got to, uh, be basically thinking about each other. We need to be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you're there and too called that you should inherit a blessing. Now, you know, why would any of that happen? Why would there ever be any railing and things like that or evil? You know why? Because you get enough people around each other. We're all sinners and people are going to mess up. Even saved Christians are going to mess up they're going to get out of line. They're going to have bad days. There's going to be personality conflicts. There's going to be all kinds of things. And we're supposed to learn how to put up with each other. And we got to be courteous. And you know what? There's going to be people that rub you the wrong way. Maybe you don't particularly care for. You need to love them anyway. That's part of our job as a church. And that's so we don't go railing for railing. You know what you do? You let things go. Somebody's going to do you wrong in this church in 2022. And you know what you need to do? You need to try to, you need to deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, you need to try to, you need to try to work things out with that person. And you know what? You know, and when I say work things out, that's probably a good message there too on conflict resolution too. Some people are always trying to work things out and all they know how to do is just escalate situations and make it 10 times worse. That's a sermon for another day. Remind me to preach on that sometimes. But people in the church are going to do you wrong. Just, you'll learn to let some things go. Verse 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. We've got to learn to just let God handle some things. We should strive for peace. And I I would never want to be the cause of conflict in a church or the person that it's always centered around. And there is, there's always that one person that's in the middle of every problem. Anytime there's a conflict, anytime there's a problem, there's always that one person that you can find that always just seems to be the center of everything. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. You should strive to be a peacemaker. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good. So understand, God is against those that are doing evil. If somebody in this church is out of line, not behaving right, God's going to deal with them. God's going to be on them. Okay, 
So now what about you? Well, here's the thing. If you're doing the right thing, then who can harm you? Is basically what he's saying. And so, because if, if you're bad, God is coming for you. But if you're doing good, you don't really have anybody to be afraid of. Okay? But then notice here in verse 14, it says, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You know, these people who are always being attacked for righteousness' sake, you'd think they would be happy if they were actually biblical. Oh, just everybody's always doing me wrong. I'm just trying to get things right. It's everybody else's fault. Well, man, hey, listen, if you really are suffering that much for righteousness' sake, you should be the happiest person in the church. You know, if, if, if we're really as bad as you say, and you're really as good as you say, you should keep coming to this church so you can keep racking up rewards because of all the bad treatment that you're getting. Right? Now, here's the thing about that. People who have that victim you know, mentality, that martyr mentality or whatever, it's usually their fault. Okay? It's usually their, it's usually their fault. But Peter's trying to let the people know here, listen, you're going to suffer sometimes, even when you are right, but that should make you happy because you're going to get a blessing from it. So uh, don't sweat it. Verse 15 says, because uh, God's going to take care of whatever it is. God's going to set things right. So verse 15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So just keep your heart right and you know what? You'll be ready. You'll have answers. You'll be ready to answer those who challenge you. Verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So all of us should always be striving to have that good conscience, that clear conscience, where even if things aren't going our way, and I talked a little bit about the Sunday night, we can at least rest assured, I'm in the will of God, I'm doing the right thing. I might be getting beat up right now, I might not be getting treated right, these things are unfair, but I'm right with God. God sees what I'm going through, He sees what I'm dealing with, and so, I don't like what I'm dealing with, but I've got a clear conscience. That's something we all ought to shoot for. That Our goal should not be for everything to be fair in our life, because that's just never going to happen. What can happen is that you just have a clear conscience in whatever happens. That's something you can actually control. None of us can control what everybody does to us. But we can have a good conscience. And so then he says... For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. We don't want to waste our time suffering for sin. We don't want to hinder our walk with God because we're suffering for sin. How effective am I going to be as a soul winner if I'm spending my time as a fugitive running from the law You know, because I'm... Breaking, you know, breaking the good laws that are out there. It, I, that's not good. It, if I do that, I'm suffering for sin. And do you realize how unnecessary and unproductive suffering for sin is? Because of the fact, didn't Jesus Christ already suffer for our sins? And He paid for our sins? So, as a Christian, 
If I'm suffering for sin, I'm not accomplishing anything spiritually, am I? Okay, Catholic penance is a false doctrine. Okay? I'm not, I'm not, you know, getting some of my purgatory over with. If I'm suffering for evil doing, that's all I'm doing. Is I'm suffering for evil doing. I deserve it. And guess what? No rewards. No rewards. But if my suffering that I'm dealing with is because I'm doing right, then the will of God is being fulfilled. God is being glorified. I'm racking up rewards in heaven. So listen, if I'm going to suffer, I'd like to at least get some rewards out of it. So I'd rather suffer for well-doing rather than evil-doing. Okay. Now, keep in mind, everything we've been talking about so far, it's been our behavior as Christians, hasn't it? Every, everything so far. And then he goes on to tell us that it's so important that we don't be doing these evil because we don't want to be suffering for evil doing. There, there's no good that comes from it. Now we're about to get into the difficult passage, okay? And, and I'm going to and I'm, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to tell you what I believe about this passage, and then we're going to kind of go back and look at it again with some things in mind. But it, it will help if you if you keep in mind the context. We're not changing subjects here, okay? We're not we're not entering into a new subject. We're still on the same subject that was in chapter 2 and that's going well into chapter 4. So, look what it says in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So, Jesus already suffered and paid for your sins. So, if you suffer for your sins because you're, you're being evil, it's not producing anything good. Okay? The, the suffering... For our sins that needed to take place has already taken place by Jesus Christ. He did, he did it for us. So he's already suffered for our sins. We don't need to add suffering for our life, to our life because it's just, it's just that. Suffering. Okay. So now we're getting to the difficult passage and many get confused and whatever it is, we all try to interpret this passage to fit our theology on certain things. Okay. And a lot of people will use this passage to prove Nephilim. Uh, Abraham's bosom, okay? and and a, a you know a very difficult passage that's kind of inserted in here in an entire passage that's all about our behavior as Christians. And so he says in verse 19, well, let's read verse 18 again. So it says, "For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison." which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. So, so I really want to clear this up. So 19 through 21, they can be very uh, confusing. And I think partially because of kind of how the sentence is, is structured. Okay, This is a difficult, difficultly worded passage Okay, that doesn't necessarily, you know, and, and my interpretation based on how it's written here, you know, when it comes to our English grammar and all the rules, so, you know, that doesn't really fit. But, you know, you got to understand, too, um, sometimes the way we talk, the way we say things, explain things, it kind of changes over time. 
you know, the, this is translated from another language. So there could be some things that maybe we just don't completely understand about how this is being spoken right here. But just whatever you think about it, the wording is pretty difficult on here. So my interpretation is basically going to be based on the context, what he's been talking about, because I don't believe we've just changed subjects into this passage. And so, you know, you know, to help us, you know, we need to forget about trying to make it fit our theology when it comes to Nephilim, Abraham's bosom, or any weird doctrines. Okay, We've got to ask ourselves, what is Peter talking about? Why is he bringing up things in the days of Noah? And so, in reality, I think it's pretty easy to prove who the spirits in prison are. Because who are those spirits in prison that Jesus preached to? I think it's actually pretty easy to prove who the spirits in prison are. And I've heard it explained this way before uh, accurately. But often, when people explain it right, they kind of fail to bring up why the reference to Noah. Because most people, when they read this passage, they this preaching to the spirits in prison they automatically think it was something that took place in the days of Noah. And I just, I don't think that's the case. And I'll show you why here in a little bit. So, first thing you've got to realize, this entire chapter, going into the next chapter, is telling believers how to live. God expects us to have victory over the flesh. And He does not expect us to live like the Gentiles. God does not expect that. So, the question we've got to answer no, is why is he bringing up Noah and the flood? What does that have to do with holy living? Why is that thrown in there? If this is about Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in hell, a lot of people say, well, when Jesus died, he went and he preached to the spirits in hell. Well, I think that's kind of a stretch. And you ask a lot of people, what was he doing for those three days? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was preaching. Where do you get that? First Peter chapter 3. Okay, well, that's what a lot of people believe. Uh, you know, they'll say he's preaching to people, you know, whatever your position is. How does Jesus preaching in hell to whoever he's preaching to go along with anything that's been discussed in this chapter? It just doesn't go along. So something very important to help you understand exactly who the prisons in were, spirits in prison were, we need to understand there's two groups that were preached to. There were the spirits in prison and then in chapter 4, there's another group that's mentioned. Now look at chapter 4 in verse 6. It says, For this cause was the uh, gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And so, well, Jesus went down to hell. You know, He was preaching to them fallen angels. Uh, that he had locked up down there and he was also preaching to the dead. He was preaching to the, all those in Abraham's bosom. And everybody in Abraham's bosom, they heard his preaching. They all got saved because they heard preaching on the death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. And then uh, Jesus took them all up into heaven, led captivity captive. Uh, that, that, folks, that's what people preach. That is very common. But, if, if okay, so Jesus preaching to the dead was preaching to people in hell or good hell. But how do those people, you know, live according to God in the Spirit when they're dead? Or even in heaven. Isn't everybody that's in heaven now living according to God in the Spirit, I guess you could say? He's, he's talking to people on earth wanting them to do this. Wanting them to live according to God in the Spirit. So we've got 
the spirits in prison that were preached to. And then here he says, also the dead were preached to. So that tells me you've got the dead that were preached to, but there was another group that was pre- the gospel was preached to that were not dead. Who are they? And what does that mean? Now, let me, so, uh, when we understand this, we can rule out the idea that the dead people were in hell because you know, no one got out of hell except Jesus. And if there was going to be a group that, that got out, wouldn't it be the spirits in prison rather than those that were dead? Uh, it just seems like that would be the more likely group to come out. But let me tell you who these two groups are. The spirits in prison. I believe that the spirits in prison were the Israelites that were under the law. And then I believe that the dead were the Gentiles. Okay? Now, let me uh, show you why I believe this. Okay? I'm going I'm to go to several passages if you want to try to follow along. I believe that the spirits in prison specifically were the Israelites. Now, I'll show you why they were referred to as spirits in prisons and not dead, like the Gentiles. I'll, I'll show you this. But in Isaiah 42, 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out of the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So he says, I'm going to get, this is a prophecy about Jesus saying that he's going to get the prisoners out of prison. Can we call them spirits in prison? I, I think we could. Because they weren't physically in prison, were they? They were spiritually in prison. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the good, uh, good tidings of the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And then in Luke 4.18, Jesus is reading that very passage. And He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So am I wrong for saying Jesus preached to spirits in prison when he was on earth? I, it's what the Bible says. It was prophesied that he was going to do that. And then he literally did it, read that passage, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your ears. So, folks, I, I believe Jesus preached to the spirits in prison on, while he was on earth. Okay? Not, not in the days of Noah. Now, I understand why people go there. And we're going to go to that in a little bit. But just a few more verses. Psalms 146.5 says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keep the truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. Zechariah 9.11 As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Okay, so, we see this constant theme of Jesus preaching to prisoners, those that are bound, and that He was going to loose them and set them free. Now, you could say, well, this would apply to Gentiles too. But understand, the Bible illustrates those who are under the law as being prisoners, and He uses a different illustration for those who have no law. 
Because that law of God, it's referred to, even in the New Testament, as bondage. Okay, And so another objection is we feel this applies to many people that we see today when out soul winning who are not Jews or under the law. And it does apply to them because of the fact that Christianity has made an impact on the whole world. The gospel has gone to the whole world, but so-called Christianity has also Christianity has also been corrupted where we have many today exactly like the Jews who are trying to obtain righteousness through the law. Many are trying to do that. They are looking for righteousness. They know about Jesus. They know the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They can tell you the story. They've got crucifixes hanging up in their house. But they think they've got to work their way to heaven. They are in bondage, folks. But you know, you have some people that are out there who have no spiritual knowledge at all. Now, I think they're more rare today. Most people have heard about Jesus in some way or another. It doesn't make them saved, okay? But there are, and especially back then, during this time, or at least not long before that, during the time of Christ, the only light, the only revelation that had really been given to the world for the most part was in Israel amongst the Jews. The Gentiles, they were not seeking after righteousness. The Gentiles were dead in their trespasses and sin. That's the illustration the Apostle Paul used. They, and the Jews, even though they weren't all saved, there was some spiritual life, you could say, in them because didn't God move among the Jews all the time? Did God not manifest Himself to them? Did they not know who He was? Did they not know about Jehovah? Did He not give them the oracles of God? So you could say there was some life there, but there was also bondage that these people needed to be saved from. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save them. And so the Gentiles in the first century, they were not looking for, uh, they were not looking for righteousness. And Romans tells us that. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, says, which things are an allegory for these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, for Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Paul referred to the Jews as being the ones being in bondage. He didn't put this on the whole world. He put it specifically on the Jews because they were the ones that were trying to obtain righteousness through the law. And folks, you can't do it. It's, it's bondage. You can know about God. You can know a lot of the things of God. But if you're trying to achieve salvation that way, it's going to hold you down. It's going to keep you in chains. You're going to be in bondage and you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. And that's where the Jews were. And Jesus came to loose them from that. And there's a lot more illustrations and things that Jesus gave while He was on earth. We don't have time to go into. But um, Galatians... So Jerusalem is associated with bondage because of their attempt to keep the law. Galatians 2.4 says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They had Judaizers in, that were coming into this church in Galatia trying to bring them in bondage. And how were they trying to do that? They were trying to force a circumcision on them. They were trying to bring the things of the temple and the things of the law on them. And Paul told them, stay away from that. They are trying to bring you into bondage. These things aren't right. So bondage was an illustration used for those trying to achieve righteousness through the law. So 
who does the Bible use the dead illustration for? Well, Paul in Ephesians 2, talking to the Ephesians, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what does that mean? Now, the Calvinists take this and they use this to prove that you can't choose to get saved. That, you know, because, you know, what, what can a dead man do? Right? You know, I mean, a dead man can't call on the Lord. A dead man can't repent of his sins. You know, a dead man, they'll tell you all these things that a dead man can't do. Well, just understand that, you know, again, this is an illustration that's being used, okay? Obviously, people aren't literally dead, but, but spiritually they are dead. They were dead. And no, but what does that mean? Because even while dead, it says, wherein in times past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So those who are dead in their sins, they're just kind of they kind of live like animals, going off animal instinct. I feel like doing this, I'm going to do this. I feel like stealing, I'm going to steal. You know, unless somebody is going to inflict more pain on me then that will stop me from stealing because I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to get beat up or whatever. But these pe- but pe- there's many people like that today. That's why I have so much fornication out there, so much adultery. People pretty much just live like animals. Whatever they feel like doing, that's exactly what they do. And it says that they, by nature, they were children of wrath and God loved them anyway. And even when we were dead in sins, it quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. So the Gentiles, uh, you know, and notice too, that's the opposite of what Paul said. Remember when Paul said, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles? See, there was back then, this distinction has gone, a clear distinction between the Jews who weren't necessarily all saved, but had a revelation of God, a knowledge of God, had the law of God, were following the things of God, but they still weren't saved because they needed to believe on Christ. And as long as they remained under the law, they were in bondage. But then you had those Gentiles that the Jews really looked down on. But those, or not the, yeah, the, but those dead Gentiles, for some reason, when they would hear the gospel, they were all over it. Where the Jews, they fought against it. So there was, and so the Gentiles, they were, I believe, the dead. They weren't looking for righteousness. No revelation from God like the Jews. They didn't know who God was. The Jews were the people of God. And even though many were not saved, God still dealt with them. They knew who He was. They had laws. They had customs that exclusively in many ways were for them. Now, they never got saved through the things of the law but they did have a position and a place with God. They were the chosen people and were supposed to have righteousness. But they were never able to get it under the bondage of the law. And so, the spirits in prison, I think that's a great illustration for Jesus came and preached to those spirits in prison. And you know what? The Gospel was also preached to the dead. Okay, the Gentiles. Dead would be a good illustration to explain the state of Israel during their history, uh, you know, or or wouldn't be a good one because of all the things that God did during that time. But bondage is a great illustration, and so just like they, because they were in bondage in Egypt while being the people of God, they were they were in bondage. And understand 
That's where the Jews were. And Jesus came to loose them from that bondage. Also, turn over to John chapter 5 and verse 19. I got to hurry. John chapter 5 and verse 19. I don't have time to go into all the context of this passage right here, but Jesus is, he's been preaching to the Jews, getting shut down again by the Jews, and then, and they, they were wanting to kill him. And then in verse 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but that which he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that, uh, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily I verily I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So just like there is a time in the future coming where everyone in the graves is going to hear his voice and they're going to come up, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead someday. Jesus said, right now is a time when the dead are going to hear the voice of God. And so you had these Jews who are rejecting him and Jesus, they're dishonoring him and Jesus is telling them, that all men were supposed to honor him. Not just the Jews. All men were supposed to do it. And you know what? The time was coming and it was now when the dead were going to hear his voice. And I believe he's referring to all men. This isn't just about you, Israel. The respect that you're supposed to be giving me is supposed to be, I'm supposed to be getting from all the world. And Jesus got more respect from the Gentiles than he did from the Jews. Even during his lifetime, that was the case many times. And so the Jews, they've just been going after Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath day. They wanted to keep a man in physical bondage rather than go against their custom uh, and their way that they had of keeping the Sabbath. Jesus goes on to tell these self-righteous people that it was the time when the dead were going to hear the voice of God. These were people who did not follow the law. And they were going to hear his voice. This was Jesus showing he was going to be going outside their group to reach people. And so what we're seeing here in these two chapters is Jesus, he preached to both groups. Those in bondage, those dead in their sins, he got victory for both of them. And that's what I believe he's referring to. And, and, and we're not, uh, if you go through 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, you'll see the same thought is being, is, is being continued. He's talking about behavior. Verse 1, For as much as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So he's trying to stop these people from sinning. 
of living like the Gentiles, of, of living like heathens. That's the whole point of this entire passage. Okay? But we do have that reference to the days of Noah. That it does kind of look like that the preaching or whatever Jesus did was in that day. So, but I don't, I think Jesus preached to the spirits in prison while he was on this earth. Okay? That, that, that's what I believe. So, let's go, let, let's, let's read this again. So, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Jesus accomplished suffering for sins for us, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. He preached to those under the law that were in bondage so he could free them, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. Okay, I believe the Jews, they failed to keep the law of God. They were disobedient. So why the reference to Noah? I don't believe this is identifying when they were disobedient, but I believe what he's doing here is he's showing an example of the long-suffering mercies of God, especially towards the Jews. Like just, just, how, just like how the ark saved eight souls from the flood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, saved Israel or those who believed on Him from their sins and from the filth of the flesh, from that corruptible seed that they had. It, it saved them from that. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're secure. We have victory in Jesus. We don't need to be a servant of sin. We are not in bondage and we definitely aren't dead. So just like God was long-suffering with the world in the days of Noah and, uh, and saved Noah's family through the ark, God was long-suffering with Israel to those spirits in prison and made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus was like their ark. Their ark. And those who got in, those of Israel, those spirits in prison who got in with Jesus Christ, they were saved uh, from, from the ramp. So the reference to Noah... I think it's just an example of long-suffering and salvation, which is what God did for the spirits in prison. I think He's just... So, while, it, while the wording makes it kind of confusing, I, I believe that's what He's doing because that fits the context of everything that we see going on. And so the fact that Jesus Christ has done all this for us, He's conquered our sins. He paid for our sins. He's cleansed us. He's quickened us. He's given us spiritual life because He's done all these things. You know what? We shouldn't go around sinning. We should live godly lives. So verse 22, Who has gone into heaven is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Jesus conquered all these things so we can conquer them too. We can be godly. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can be godly. Okay, stop blaming your flesh and bringing up the fact, well, you know, we haven't got our glorified bodies yet. No, but you have the Spirit of God. So stop giving your flesh what it wants. When you do that, you're in disobedience. And you're going to suffer on earth for that sin. And that's, you know what? It's pointless. There's no spiritual value to you suffering for your sins in this earth because Jesus already suffered for you. So just don't sin. Just get victory over these things. 
Jesus, so, uh, so in chapter 4, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is the point of the entire passage. We are not dead. We are not in bondage. We are free. We have liberty. And let's use that liberty for the glory of God and stop sinning. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. That, that's what the Gentiles do. Okay? They just, their day to day life, whatever I feel like doing, that's what I'm going to do. We can't do that, folks. There's a lot of stuff that our flesh desires that God has forbidden for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wines, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And this is why it's important we understand he's talking to Israelites. And I believe this. Because as a people, they had a past where they did all the same things that the Gentiles did. And you don't believe me, just go read the Old Testament. They, they did everything that the Gentiles did. And God was more upset with them than he was the Gentiles. He expected more because they did have some revelation of God. They did have some life. They didn't have eternal life. But they knew better. They had the oracles of God. And so wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking of evil of you. You know, the world thinks we're nuts because we don't do the things that they do. They think something is wrong when you don't live according to the desires of your flesh like they do. But it says, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. God's going to judge both for this cause. For this cause, because God's going to judge both. God's going to judge the living and the dead. And for this cause, uh, was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So this passage here shows also that the dead were a separate group. And notice how they're going to be judged the same as the Jews. But then notice, God also expects the Gentiles to live according to the way He expected the Jews to live. You know why? Because God gave us spiritual life, didn't He? God gave us His Spirit and He expects us. We've got to understand, there is a distinction here in Peter. There was a distinction in that day that no longer exists between... because You know why? Because there are no Old Covenant Jews living today. Okay, This distinction has gone, folks. It was there during that time but it, it went away. They were seen as very different. They were seen as having different natures. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. And so, yes, the Jews were also condemned by their failure and needed salvation exactly like we did, but there was that spiritual distinction, distinction that was put on those who were the people of God under the Old Covenant versus those who were not. So, those natural branches were broken off and we were put in the same category or they were put in the same category as the Gentiles. So we need to understand the distinction doesn't exist anymore because there's no first century Jews living today. So ultimately, what we've got to understand about this passage, the context of the entire passage is God expects us to live godly and have victory over sin. The gospel that was preached to the spirits in prison were the Israelites. The dead were the Gentiles. God expected the exact same results for both groups. The reference to Noah was an example of the long-suffering nature of God 
and how He provided a way of salvation for Noah's family. God did the same thing with Jesus Christ for those of Israel, those spirits in prison who were willing to believe on Christ. So, and you know, understand, this is not as rock solid of an interpretation as I would like, but I do believe it fits the context of the subject of these two chapters, or three chapters. And so, there are difficult scriptures in the Bible, and this is definitely one of them, but you know what we should do? We should always interpret the unclear by the clear, and not opposite. Okay? And so, since we know for sure what all these other passages are talking about, let's, let's let those other passages influence how we're looking at the difficult passage. Instead of saying, well, you know, I, I was, I, I want to, I got to prove that Abraham's bosom doctrine because I've been preaching it for years and uh, I, I need something. I need something, folks. But it just doesn't fit. The, you know, there, there's no, per, there's no purpose of that. And I, I, I won't even get into some of the crazy theories I've heard on this passage and things people come up with. And when you do, when you look at the whole passage, it's like, this is ridiculous. But, Anyway, I hope that I hope that makes sense. I hope that was a help. And so, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I uh, thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture and the instruction that it gives. And Lord, more importantly, just knowing for sure how to interpret the difficult passage, I pray that we will get the simple passages that are there about just our, our, our behavior, how we're supposed to live our life. Lord, you know, who cares if we know how to... If we understand all mysteries, we've got all these difficult passages figured out, but we just can't even follow the simple instructions. So if anybody gets anything from this message, Lord, I pray that they'll get that. And, and uh, Lord, I just pray to help us to uh, be that example to this uh, crazy world we're living in. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen.